0: And even... Checkout's not until
1: 4, so...
0: Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.
2: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom Help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.
1: Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co hosts Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Always a pleasure to join you in the introduction to this program. Max, who have you got for us? This week on the show, I talked to Delia Kai. Delia, as I am sure you guys are familiar with, uh, is behind the newsletter D's Links. There's a media newsletter. Uh, she started it as a fellow At the Atlantic magazine and it recently landed her job as the senior vanities correspondent at Vanity Fair so she's now at Vanity Fair we talked about that we also talked about her new book it's a novel came out this week it's called Central Places so we talked about That book and how it fits into her media life and how you parlay a newsletter into a full-time job and why she didn't want the newsletter to be anything more than what it was. It was a uh, great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to her. I feel like I um, learned something about uh, how the media works now, you guys.
3: Wow. Even Grizzled Max
1: learned something about how the media works? No, No spoilers, but this interview did make me feel very old. I should tell you guys. I definitely am at a all-time low of knowing how the media works right now <laughs> for the entire run of this podcast. It was very kind of Delia to come and uh, give me a tutorial. It's very helpful. I do know, however, that this show is produced in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make it, which we thank them for. Thank you to everyone uh, over there at the Vox Media. And now here's Max with Delia Kai. Hi Delia. Hi Max. Thanks for doing the podcast.
3: Oh my god thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, it's very exciting for me we're in person. Yes. Which is like a uh, I feel like still is rare enough that I, I have to note it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like I'm talking to you at like a, uh, a, a kind of wild moment.
3: Yeah yeah I think I've just like blocked out so much of it that day to day I'm just like oh well, like what's for lunch? Like <laughs> I gotta go figure out lunch and then And then it's the next hour's, like, problem.
1: Uh, Well, I do want to talk to you about this novel, which by the time this airs will have just come out. You and I are talking the week before. How are you feeling about it?
3: I'm feeling really excited. I've gotten a lot of really good advice, I think, over the past few months. And so I feel like I've hit all the stages of, like, panic, dread, being convinced I'm going to be hit by a car. (laughs) But I keep kind of, like sort of cycling down to this like place of just like excitement and joy and um, really looking forward to I think just sharing something that's so personal to me with with my friends most of whom you know I just don't really know about kind of the side of me both like sort of fiction writer wise but also um, girl from like the middle of nowhere wise so it sort of feels almost like a I don't know, like some kind of like debut, I think, of like, here's my full self, you guys. I hope you like it.
1: <laughs> it's amazing to be meeting a moment like that, feeling yeah. Um, joyful.
3: Yeah. I mean, we'll see. You know, talk to me tomorrow and I might be like, Max, I'm like freaking out. I'm definitely going to get hit by a car.
1: But at least right now in this moment, yeah. joyful. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have more questions about the book, but I feel like we should start with uh, the side that you're saying, you're like revealing to people which is where you grew up tell me about your hometown and also like what was your relationship to magazines and writing and media when you were a kid
3: um so I was born in Madison Wisconsin my parents were grad students and then we moved to Peoria Illinois um pretty quickly like I think when I was like four or five so we lived like in Peoria proper like Peoria proper is like a mid-sized city. Um, but then we moved sort of out to kind of like what is technically a village. It's called the the village of Dunlap. It like used to be a farming village. Basically it's now more of like a suburb of Peoria. Um, and I really grew up there, I think from the age of seven through like high school. And education was always super important for my parents. And so I was always reading. So I remember like sort of really just like gobbling up, you know, what print media was available um because we didn't really like have like the internet internet back then and my other sort of like core memories like going to the library I think in middle school and checking out these really old issues of vogue and just having my mind blown because like my mom didn't read fashion magazines you know and so I would take these home and I would read every single word I would like read every caption I would read like the little like I think where they, like, acknowledge, like, you know, like, who photographed this or whatever or, like, the little price tag on every bag. And it just – it was, like, a foreign world, you know. But I think I was so starved for, like, any kind of words that I would, like, make myself, like, study it.
1: Were you writing at that time too?
3: I think so. I – like, I I loved school and I loved, like, writing little things in school. In middle school, I discovered this website called quizilla.com. Everyone is like, oh, were you, like, a Tumblr kid? And I'm like, no, no, no. (laughs) I wish because I think that actually would have, like, helped me be more normal. But I was a Quizilla kid, and it was, like, this website that was sort of like a proto-Buzzfeed, actually, where anyone could make an account, and then you could make quizzes and publish quizzes. And then there was, like, a leaderboard that ranked, like, the highest-rated quizzes, the most popular quizzes, And you could, like, message other users. And I think, like, this website was populated probably by just, like, a few thousand, like, preteen girls like me. But someone figured out very quickly you could hack that quiz format to, like, write fan fiction. And you'd publish, like, installments. And so it was, like, serialized fan fiction and then original fiction. And I just, like, totally fell into it. Like, that was my whole life. (laughs) Like, through middle school, a lot of high school. And that was when I was started. I started reading enough, just like other people's fan fiction and, and original fiction, that I was like, I could do this, you know. So I just I started just writing from there, and it sort of taught me how to like, okay, if you know your readers are going to expect a new chapter every week, then you better figure out like how to do a plot. You better figure out how to, you know, where you want to end it. You better figure out how to like um, organize your schedule so that you can keep up with your deadlines as a 14-year-old.
1: Self-imposed deadlines. Yeah,
3: it was, like, the best training ever because, obviously, like, no one in my real life knew I was doing this. Well,
1: yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, did you talk to anyone in your real life about it?
3: Not really. I don't think I told anybody. I think maybe, like, one friend knew that I published stories on it, and she was so supportive. I remember she, like, just printed them all out so that she could read them. Because, again, this was, like, early, like... We were, like, young millennial kids. We didn't have unlimited screen time, right? Mm -hmm. So she was like, oh, I printed all your stories out. I'm going to read them, which is really (laughs) funny. But otherwise, no. I remember one time, so I was writing a story, and I made the mistake of, like, using real names from, like, I think kids I knew from school. And then months later, this one kid who I went to church with was like telling the other kids, and he was showing them a printout of the story. He's like, dude, I Googled my name and all of our names are like <laughs> like in this random story. And I was I, I don't remember if I coped to so it. I just remember being like, that's crazy. And then like learned a big lesson from that.
1: It's wild. Yeah. Wild. I wonder who did that. I know.
3: Then I went home and like changed the names and I was like, this could never happen again.
1: <laughs> did you care about the leaderboard?
3: Yeah. I would say my, my stuff did pretty well on Quizilla.
1: Don't be modest. Um, Where were you on the leaderboard?
3: Well, so it like depended. Like it was like I think once – so I had this – my my Harry Potter fan fiction was called Immune to the Malfoy Charm. <laughs> I, I'm like cringing, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, if
1: only people could see the expression on your face right now.
3: It had I think like 70 chapters. Um, Holy hell. And it, yeah, I know. It took a while, right, because I was really kind of learning as I went. But I think towards the end once I had like – a readership and like a rhythm. It got to the point where like if I posted a new chapter, the next day would be um, not at the top of the leaderboards, but it would be like on you know like the most popular. I think and, and top rated. You were in the game. Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was like the highest high. I've been chasing that high ever <laughs> since. You know.
1: It's interesting that you say that because I I feel like that is such a unique way to start writing. Like writing yeah. that consciously for an audience.
3: Yeah, yeah. Like there was always an audience like from the beginning.
1: How do you think that impacted your writing?
3: Um, That's a good question. I'm not sure I had the awareness as like a 12 and 13-year-old to, to sort of be like, oh, the audience is going to love this. I think I just remember it was just very good for I think just like getting into a rhythm because all I knew was that like if I don't publish something by Saturday, I'm going to get a few messages in my inbox that are like, hey, girl, like, where's the new? Because, like, you know, there's no one more committed than a bunch of teen girls with, like, endless time on their hands. <laughs> and so they know if you if you miss your deadline, you know.
1: So you're sitting in your parents' house in Dunlop.
3: In the computer room.
1: In the computer room. Yeah. <laughs> killing it on the leaderboards. Yeah. Did you have ideas then of wanting to a writer? Did you have like a plan in mind? Did you have ambitions?
3: Yeah, I think I remember watching Gilmore Girls, and like that was my introduction to like you could study journalism, like you could be a journalist. There was a girl who lived in my neighborhood whose dad worked for the local paper. That was the only journalist like I knew personally. But I was like, Mister Hilliard seems really cool, (laughs) Um, and so I think like in like towards the end of high school, that was the plan. Um, We had like a career day where. You could be put in, like, a company to shadow someone for a day. And I remember they put me at the Peoria Journal Star for a day with a friend. And right away, the woman there was just like, girls, I have to be honest. It's a really hard time to be getting into journalism. (laughs) And we were like, oh, okay. Like, that's great. It's a little too late. Like, I don't have, like, a backup plan. Um,
1: What year are we talking about here?
3: I think this must have been, like, 2010, 2011. Okay. So it's still, like, kind of post-recession. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you go to your first newspaper, and the first thing that someone says to you is, this is a terrible idea? Yeah, like,
3: I think it was almost immediately. They were just like, uh, you know, like, maybe don't do this.
1: (laughs) And then what happens next? Clearly, you didn't take her advice.
3: I was so convinced that, like, journalism was the path that, like, when I was just looking at colleges, I, I looked at a bunch of journalism schools. And I just remember, like, being really into the fact that, Mizzou's journalism school is pretty much a trade school like I remember like I was looking at the website and like most most J schools for undergrad it was like you know basically one journalism degree and Mizzou is like you can choose you know do you want to go into newspapers do you want to go into magazines do you want to go to into advertising or you can go into broadcast and there were just sort of all these like even smaller concentrations so that you could literally go to Mizzou's J school And graduate with, like, a Bachelor of Journalism that, like, had an emphasis in magazine publishing. Mm -hmm. And that specificity, I was like, yes. Like, I want to do that because I think I really wanted to work in magazines. And so I was like, this is the way. Because, like, I, I was just sort of like, I don't know how else you would do it. Like, I don't know anyone in the industry. I don't know how you actually do this. I have a faint idea of what Mr. Hilliard does all day, <laughs> right? Uh, but I think I have to go to like and literally get trained on this from the bottom up. And now when I look back, I sort of wish that I had gone maybe to, I, I would have, I think I would have done things differently in some ways because, you know, I I think I missed out on some more like normal college experiences, but I was just sort of like, I'm ready for my career. What is the middle step here?
1: What do you feel like you missed out on?
3: like I I talk about this all the time with people where I'm like I've never read Proust like Mm -hmm. I've never like I feel like I miss all these references that are tossed around like daily you know like when you like anything that like I read or hear sometimes I'm just like I I've missed out on like kind of this classic work in a way because I took like stats classes and like humanities classes but like not that many. It was mm-hmm. mostly like a trade school. So I was sort of like, oh, I remember we had a class where they taught you how to tweet and they taught us like what a hashtag was, you know. Really? You yeah. Went to, you went to hashtag class? Yeah. It was <laughs> it was like multimedia journalism class. <laughs> we had to make an account, we had to tweet like three times a week. It was it was the best training ever. Was it actually? Yeah, yeah. But it was like that
1: almost seems like a like a satire I know, right? of what a J school would be doing in twenty twelve or yeah. whatever
3: it was kind of funny because we were like we don't need someone to explain to us how to do Twitter but I'm not sure that I would have gotten on Twitter at that age if it wasn't required and it was sort of very silly where they're like oh like you have to you know you have to tweet consistently like think about your brand like stuff like that but this was in like like 2011 2012 where I think actual journalists were still trying to figure out like is it gross to be a brand and like At least like in school, they were all about it. They're like, you need a brand. You need to think about like what your niche is going to be. You need to think about engaging your audience. Um, We had to make websites. We had to blog. And of course, all of us being college students, we started using our blogs to write about each other. (laughs) We used Twitter to, you know, like talk shit about each other in a very thinly veiled way. So really, it was like the best training (laughs) for being online.
1: (laughs) There really is a trade school, I guess.
3: Mm-hmm. Their their whole thing is like, just go out and and start doing it. We're like we can't really teach you how to write an article, but it was kind of funny because Mizzou is in this like pretty small, like like mid sized college town of Columbia, and every single journalism student was always like working on some kind of project, and the rule was like. You can't interview like your friends. You can't like you know interview any- anyone you know, and so I'm telling you like every resident of Columbia, Missouri has had like <laughs> like a glowing <laughs> profile <laughs> written about them like a million times over. <laughs> so it was almost it was also very competitive in that way. We were like, oh my god, like I need to look for a story that no one in the history of the school has ever done, and it was kind of impossible.
1: Were you competitive?
3: I no no because I. I sort of immediately was like, whoa, there are kids here from like very, I think, like news literate households. And they were so intense that it really threw me off because I just thought we were all starting from the same place where we, you know, maybe we read old issues of Vogue, but like I had friends who were like, did you read like, you know, this month's Atlantic? And I was like, what is the Atlantic? Like, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know what the New Yorker was for sure. My exposure was like, I see the magazines in the grocery stores. Yeah. And, and that's about it.
1: So what did you do with that feeling?
3: It helped me make friends in a way because I'm trying to think of like the friends I made in college. And I think so much of it was us banding together within the journalism school and sort of observing the groups of other students who were just like, huge hustlers like I like it's it sounds so judgy we were basically judging other students for being more like hustle focused than we were like we were all just kind of like scrambling all the time Mm -hmm. but it was just really funny because there were some students there who were like so well suited I think to that kind of pressure and that kind of like like kind of aggression even like I remember I had a friend who I went to a city council meeting with and he like, you could just tell he was born for this. Like, he, like, leapt up there, like, was interviewing all these, like, city councilmen. And, like, we're, like, sophomores, you know. And I'm just sitting there and I'm, like, I'm not trying to do this. Like, you clearly love this. Yeah. You know, but I it, like, taught me a lot just from watching watching them.
1: Is that part of why when you became a fellow at the Atlantic, you went on the, like, business side, not the yeah. editorial side? Yeah.
3: I was so intimidated. I, well, because I, I sort of figured out from journalism school that, and, like, working on the, this campus paper, I was like, oh, there are some people who love getting in people's faces and who love going up to strangers, and I'm not that kind of person at all. And so I, I kind of thought I was like, I don't know if, like, being a reporter or a writer is really for me. Like, I love thinking about journalism. I love thinking about, like, how to make something that is interesting to people. But, like, my favorite job was working on the campus paper and, like, being editor of the arts section. And so I didn't have to like edit anything. It was, I just like led the group project and I loved that. That was like the best job ever.
1: What was it like when you showed up for that fellowship in DC?
3: It was also intimidating. So they, I don't think they do the fellowship program anymore, but when it was there, it was, I think like 40 of us in the DC office. I think there were like 10 in the New York office, but I was in DC. You showed up to the Watergate on your first day and everyone is there. Everyone is really sweaty because it's, like, July and we're all in our, like, business casual clothes that we just bought. <laughs> and I, it was a slow, like, dawning realization. We all, like, got up and introduced ourselves that, like, everyone there was from, like, a way better school. There was, like, basically, like, one or two representatives from each Ivy. And then, like, all these other schools I hadn't really heard of. And then I think there were, like, three or four kids who were from a state school, too. And we were just, like whoa it was a real like we're not in kansas anymore moment i was like there are three people over there who went to harvard before today i didn't know anyone who went to harvard mm-hmm. so that was also really intimidating but i just remember having like that was like a really just wonderful almost kind of like grad school experience because you know i had all of this like this idea that everyone there was like so much more qualified and better and better educated than i was but i had this conversation with like a kid who was also kind of, like, on the business side, fellowship with me. He had, like, gone to Georgetown or something, and we're just talking about our backgrounds. And he's like, yeah, I guess we, like, both ended up in the same place. And I think he said this with sort of this, like, oh, like, why did I struggle so hard? And I was just sort of like, yeah, I guess we did, you know? Like, (laughs) um, So that that kind of, I think, helped just make me less nervous, but also just, like, developing friendships with... A lot of those fellows, who many of whom I'm, like, still so close with, um, and sort of realizing that, like, oh, yeah, like, we all come from, like, totally different places, but we all, like, love geeking out over the same stuff, and we really, like, love, love journalism. And that was sort of a, one of those moments where it's like, oh, like, I'm, like, kind of finding my people again. Like, I found them in J school. Here they are again. Like, I could see myself really growing up with these people.
1: Were you writing it all then?
3: No, that's when I started my newsletter dies links because i was really jealous that the editorial fellows were doing like what i thought was like real editorial work and i was just like i was making like memos and decks like stuff for like an audience of two Uh you know and so i was just sort of like wow like you're fact checking that's so cool and they're also like yeah but we're also like watering plants and opening mail but i was really jealous
1: Tell me about starting the newsletter. So, like, it was in part that you were jealous of the folks on the editorial side of this Mm -hmm. fellowship, but it couldn't have just been that. Like, why that newsletter? Why start writing about the media? Like, what was driving that?
3: So, like, my fellowship was in this, like, little weird area of, like, kind of – it was about, like, corporate strategy. And, like, I had no idea what that meant (laughs) as, like, a – 22 year old but it was mostly just like I just like had to read a lot of news and like Neiman Lab and then just sort of like boil it down into memos and stuff but one of the jobs was like there was like an internal newsletter where basically we would just like kind of basically do our own version of like a Neiman Lab newsletter just like here's what's happening in media and so my like my bosses/mentors at the time um, Michael and David they were really bullish on the newsletter format they're like you know if you're into this like you should here's other ones to subscribe to and I was like oh okay cool you know I could get down with that and so in some ways I, I felt like I started subscribing to all of these newsletters around that time in an effort to catch up but in also just in terms of trying to figure out like what what is out here what's going on how am I like why am I in this position where I'm like supposed to like boil down the news for like other people in the company and I don't really even know like what I'm talking about.
1: And also, it's like a pretty small audience.
3: It is a super small audience. Yeah, I remember I was like trying to be funny in this corporate newsletter, um, and they were just like, "No, no, no like no, do that. it's that's okay." <laughs> yeah, so it's just like okay. So I, this I sort need of like a, a
1: joke-free zone.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, I think that's when I was like, oh, I should, I should just do my own, and then I can be really funny because. The thing is, like, once you read, you know, a certain amount of media news, you're like, this this industry is crazy. Like, weird, like, hilarious things happen all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You can't, like, not be funny about it. So so I started on on Tiny Letter.
1: I'm not sure when it came on my radar. But my experience of reading the newsletter for a long time was that you were, like, both learning about media Mm – And sort of becoming part of it yeah in the newsletter itself like it was like educational and then at some point you were a part of that ecosystem and then like at some point you had it really well wired and had a bunch of opinions that struck me as really really smart and also like pretty novel does that mesh with your experience of it
3: I almost want to delete, like, probably, like, the first, like, two or three years of it because I'm just, like, oh, it's probably so embarrassing because I'm probably, like, learning about, I don't know, (laughs) like, really basic things and then being, like, did you guys know, you know?
1: Well, I went back and read a lot of it. Oh, God. (laughs) Before we talked, I can tell you. But there is some of just trying to, like, figure stuff out. But it's, like, it's so enthusiastic Mm -hmm. and, like, (laughs) it's, like, pretty optimistic,
3: yeah. It was probably optimistic because I didn't know that much, right? And then I I think in some ways I was like I think it was around a time where digital transformation was still, I think, full of possibilities. Like like in college, David Granger came and showed us like the sort of like iPad version of Esquire and we're all like, wow, this is the future. You know, it yeah, was like yeah, that yeah. time where it still seemed like there was so like this could go in any direction. And so I think it was really easy to be optimistic in that way.
1: I mean, if Granger came to Mizzou mm-hmm. and showed you the Esquire version of the iPad, that's probably like 2013.
3: Yeah. It was like whatever it was where it was like, oh, if you hold up your iPad, like the cover star like dances around. And we we're all like, oh my God, like journals for forever change.
1: But I feel like by 2016 or 2017, yeah. it was like, no one's going to read Esquire that way.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like that stuff felt pretty clear. And that's part of what I I mean. It's like. You were writing about it wasn't naive. It was optimistic, but still, like, calling bullshit on all kinds of stuff all the time. You know, like, it just felt (laughs) to me like a really interesting balance. It wasn't like, this is all going to work out. Mm -hmm. It was like, this is all really worth being interested in.
3: Yeah. I still remember this advice that, like, my first boss, David, at The Atlantic— he – I think because, like, I remember being really overwhelmed by this idea of, like, oh, I'm supposed to just read all this, like, news? Like, what do you mean? And he was like, once you do this for a while, you're going to notice that there are, like, maybe, like, six kinds of stories of what's happening in media. Like, something new is happening and everyone's, like, flocking to it. It's not working out anymore. I don't even remember all the categories that he listed, but he was sort of, like – you're going to start seeing some patterns really soon and that was like a really helpful framework I think instead of just being like overwhelmed with the deluge of like oh my god just like all things happening all the time and sort of being able to to even put it in buckets where it's like okay iPad journalism that didn't totally work out so are like chat apps maybe the new thing and right. then it was just, I think like you could probably see like as the years went on I was like slowly really wising up to a lot of things and <laughs> then being able to be so cynical with like those like six months of additional just reading,
1: but again, it's like even if you weren't getting swept up in it, at least it felt to me as a reader like you were like, this is exciting. Mm-hmm. It's also like a little silly or yeah. a little cringe <laughs> or whatever you know. Yeah. But like, it's worth my time. Was there a point in writing the newsletter where you started to feel more apart? of the world that you were writing about?
3: Yeah, I think, so, the goal of the newsletter was, like, I'm going to write Monday through Friday. Every day I'm going to just send out an issue that's basically, like, here's, like, the one link you should know about today, and, like, here's, like, why, why you should care about it. Sometimes it's, like, a hate read. Sometimes it's, like, oh, this is, like, actually cool. And I remember I think I was, like, instead of writing five issues a week, I should just do a QA and a with, like, my friends who are starting to have really interesting jobs in media and then that will be so much less work <laughs> <laughs> which is like so hilarious to think that that was going to be way less work but that ended up just being kind of an adi- like another avenue of this kind of like self-education because I could have this excuse to just sort of ask a friend or a, fr- a friend of a friend or someone I met at an event where you know and just like ask them about their jobs and what it was really like and then somehow after a while, like, like, people would be like, yeah, like, I love the newsletter. Like, I'd love to be on your, you know, on a Q&A. And then that was that was like really kind of freaky to sort of be like, oh, my God. Oh, OK. Like, I guess this is a thing, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and once it started to feel like a thing, did it make you want to do more with it?
3: I don't think I ever wanted to go off and just be, like, a newsletter person. Why? I, it was – listen, it was so tempting, especially during that whole Substack stack yeah, like wave. You, yeah,
1: like you were there Yeah, hanging out on a surfboard. Yeah. And – And
3: then it came, yeah. And then it
1: came. Yeah. And all these other people got on it, but you didn't.
3: Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if it was just sort of, like – being a really risk-averse person or just sort of being like like I don't I don't know if it was as simple as like oh I just like didn't trust that like this newsletter could actually stand on its own that like I actually was doing anything really interesting, you know, it's like funny haha interesting as like a side project but like I can't fathom like charging people money for this. I can't imagine sort of like, just working for myself i think just personality wise it was like i like that's not for me i'm like not built for that but man it was really hard i think watching a lot of the things that were happening with substack um i think around like 2020 you know and like i was like kicking myself every other day where i was like should i you know like should i just but i think part of part of my like reticence was i was like well this is a newsletter where i'm basically plugging other people's stuff like it started growing into more like like, a kind of a column and, like, an essay. But I think for a long time I was, like, I'm just, like, this is more of, like, a distribution channel, so that doesn't seem fair to charge for it. And I think in the back of my head I was always, like, I want a job, like, at a company, and this is, like, my rolling, like, job application in a way. Like, I'm not sure I ever, like, said it out loud, but I was sort of, like, okay, I'm starting to see, you know, my friends are getting like legit jobs at places we've actually heard of (laughs) and they're doing really amazing work. And now I'm kind of like, okay, well I've learned that, you know, maybe I'm not a hardcore beat reporter in the same way that like maybe this friend or this colleague is, but the internet is showing me that like, Oh, there's actually room for all kinds of writing. Um, And so I was just sort of like, I want to like kind of keep learning, growing and I can't do that by myself. Like I think after a while I realized I was like hitting a wall in a, in a way. Where I was sort of like, uh like no one's editing this. Like mm-hmm. I would love to like work on a team. Like I think I think I was really looking for a staff job.
1: I was always interested in it, why you hadn't made that move and what the newsletter meant for you. Because like over this time you got a job at Buzzfeed, yeah. and then now you're like at Vanity Fair, yeah. which thinking about your time in Mizzou. That was probably some form of what a goal would be, right? Yeah. To be. Oh, my God. The dream. And what I hear you saying is, like, the newsletter was part, like, resume.
3: Yeah.
1: Part insurance policy. Yeah. And part just really fun.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that that worked.
3: Yeah. And I think, like, in some ways it was a nice lesson in sort of separating out, like, I think, like, millennials in general are in this pursuit of, like, or, like, we've been taught, like, there is a dream job out there. And, like, if you just work hard enough, you will get the dream job that, like, fulfills you artistically, financially, everything, you know. And I just remember spending most of my 20s being really frustrated that I was not close to that job at all and then doing this little newsletter on the side. But sometimes I look back at that now and I'm like, that was a good kind of, like, separation of, like, I don't know. Like your job is your job. And then you also have fun Mm -hmm. and make make stuff for your friends.
1: Is that the way that you feel about your job at Vanity Fair?
3: (laughs) No, I think at Vanity Fair, I'm kind of like, this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. And the pressure is still, I think, so high. And I think every other day I'm kind of like, what am I doing here? Like now that we're kind of back in the office, I'm in like meetings with my team, and also the rest of the magazine, and I'm just, like, it's it's sort of that same, like, cafeteria, Watergate feeling of just, like, am I, not that, like, you know, am I supposed to be here, but just sort of, like, everyone here knows so much about so much, and I'm just sort of overwhelmed, and I, I don't know, like like, where is my place in this, you know? So, I don't know, it's been, like, a year and a half, and I'm still really intimidated every day.
1: <laughs> it hasn't gotten better?
3: I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I, I literally was, like, talking to a friend who I think, like, had seen me right when I started. And then, like, I think a year in, he was just like, oh, yes, yeah, so, like, how's it going? And I said something and he was like, that's exactly what you said a year ago. And I was like, oh, that's a little embarrassing. Because I think the thing at Vanity Fair is this sort of shocking realization of, like, anyone you want to talk to is probably going to talk to you. So the world really is your oyster, and that's, like, kind of incredibly terrifying in some ways. And I'm sort of, like, learning learning all these lessons about just, like, what that kind of power is like, you know? Because
1: What's that kind of power like? <laughs> what are you learning?
3: I think I'm learning how ruthless of an eye you kind of have to have because if you're sort of, like, kind of interested in, like, anything – that's not always useful to your audience. And so I think what, you know, all of my colleagues at Vetting Fair are just so good at is figuring out, like, is this going to be a thing? Is this worthwhile? Is this an interesting story? Is this an interesting person? And they make these decisions so quickly. And it just it seems to come to them so naturally. And I'm just sort of like, wait, what? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, I'm still... You know, I'm still like the little J school student in Columbia, Missouri, running around being like, please, will someone talk to me for my story? You know, like I'll make anyone sound interesting. Like, I don't have this luxury of of being like, oh, like we've already interviewed this person or whatever.
1: Do you think that's how the place sees you?
3: No, I think they think that I like know everything about what's on TikTok or whatever. And I'm just sort of like. Oh, yeah, sure. And then, like, I'll go home and, like, look at it later, you know? <laughs> I think, like, yeah. <laughs> I think they think I'm way more embedded in the Internet than I really am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you think they're going to find out?
3: Um, I think they'll, like, listen to this and be like, oh, that's classic Delia. She's just, like, sh- she acts like she doesn't know anything.
1: <laughs> I mean, this is maybe um a little meta, but I feel like you're pretty comfortable with meta ness. Like the whole yeah. newsletter was pretty meta. Like, is that classic Delia? Do you like actually think that you don't know what's going on and what you're doing?
3: I don't know. I don't know because I think for a long time that has been like my identity or that just sort of like I felt like in the room – I'm not necessarily the underdog, but I'm the person who like knows the least about like kind of what's going on. And it's like I think objectively, I know like at some point that has changed. But I can't, but I also keep putting myself in these situations where I'm still surrounded by people who are like you know, kind of at the top of their game or like doing what I, you know, have kind of like like fantasized about forever. Like, you know, going to the Atlantic, I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm sitting in the cafeteria and Olga Kazan is over there and I read her work all the time. And like, this is really happening. You know, I've like pictured this, but I, you know, I I don't feel comfortable. Like, I don't feel like this is right. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, like this whole time at VF, like I've been trying to figure out like, okay, like what is going to be my thing? And I was always a little, and like I think I'm still kind of like firming that up in terms of like, oh, like it's internet culture, but also like I'm kind of interested in these kinds of books, and I'm interested in what's going on with like more of like a tech scene stuff with like Elon Musk and Twitter, and I'm also interested in um, just sort of these like random characters and our imaginations, like. The blues clues guys or whatever.
1: Yeah, there's been at least a little bit of like a nostalgia bent to yeah. the stuff you've been writing. Yeah. Like there's the blues clues and like the woman who wrote the book about adulting.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But also like you're writing pieces about like return to office mm-hmm. and like uh workplace dynamics. Like it's I don't know, there's a pretty wide gamut.
3: Yeah. And every other day it feels like I'm sort of still kind of trying to figure out like what is what is like you know what is my thing what is my brand whatever but I think I'm starting to trust that like there is something driving maybe like a sort of unified sensibility to things I mean like just hearing you say that I'm like oh there's clearly something about my whole deal where I think now that I'm in this kind of position of like, literal security, but also, like, you know, I'm not scrambling in my career anymore. I'm, like, looking back on things in my life, including my childhood, but also on just, like, just things that, like, I, like, cared about and noticed and sort of realized, like, oh, other people really cared about that stuff, too. And, like, actually, like, we can kind of, like, look back and, and talk about it together. Like, mm-hmm. in the case of, I think, like, the adulting stuff where it's, like, oh, yeah, like, my friends and I love this book, but we never really knew other people liked it. Um, so I think I'm just, like, in the part of my life right now where I'm, like, conducting this, like, reinvestigation in some ways on, like, things that I've always been interested in or, I don't know, things that have just, like, kind of stayed with me and that I realize, like, oh, these things and these people or, like, these, like, movies, like, also matter to other people. And, like, why is that?
1: I feel like um, that's a decent segue to the novel. <laughs> I know. Also also has some themes of uh, going back and right, trying right, to yeah. uh, reinterpret who you were and what you were interested yeah, in. Yeah. Can you give the like quick synopsis of Central Places?
3: Yeah. So the premise of, of Central Places is sort of this like the big city girl goes back to her small hometown in central Illinois. Um, she just got engaged. So she's bringing her fiance and he's like a nice white Brooklyn media guy not based on anyone I would know. (laughs) Uh, And she's introducing him to her parents who are Chinese immigrants. Um, So there's sort of that obvious like culture clash. But then I think the, the sort of bigger joke is that like the bigger culture clash is like her New York boyfriend and also her New York self coming back to this very, very small town and kind of grappling with like oh, there's really, like, not a place to get green juice here. Mm -hmm. Um, And sort of, like, so it's supposed to be funny in that way, but I think it's also just a larger story of, like, someone who didn't like the place where they grew up, got away, made the life that they thought they wanted, and then they're coming back and trying to, I think, reconcile her past and her present.
1: I mean, there's obviously a fair amount of overlap
3: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: (laughs) for you. Um, How much overlap is there how much of you is in this book and where are the places where you like went off script
3: yeah um I mean I love this question everyone's always like oh is it weird to be like how real is it I love asking people that question <laughs> so like if I go to a book reading and someone's like actually this is like all made up I'm just like bullshit like come on yeah you know? <laughs> well, like I mean, we like, all know <laughs>
1: this can't possibly be all made up but yeah. I, I was interested in like what you were trying to work out with it you know
3: yeah so the book is emotionally true. The sort of setup in terms of, like, you know, the daughter of Chinese immigrants grows up in central Illinois, doesn't really like it, and then moves away and goes to New York and gets, like, you know, a, a corporate job. Like, that's 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 what happened to me. So in some ways, I think I wrote the book as this, like, hypothetical of, like, what would have happened if, like, my life branched off in all these ways – According to different choices, what would have happened if, like, one specific path was undertaken where, you know, I ended up maybe working in advertising and I had a fiancé and I had to bring him home? So it's sort of like that could have totally happened. Mm-hmm. So I think the novel is sort of this answer of, like, if I had lived that life, what would have actually happened?
1: What about the relationships to yourself as a younger person and and into that place in particular thinking about Quizilla Delia
3: Mm
1: -hmm. how do you think about that time now
3: I mean not to sound all like Meghan Markle but I've been really into like the whole inner child sort of work Um, and so when I think about it now I have like a lot of love for that person because I'm sort of it's funny because talking to you I think there's this narrative of like I like grew up in the middle of nowhere and wanted to be in the center of the world. And I kind of just like like learned my way there in a way. And like to sort of see, even just from this conversation, like the seeds of that in like, you know, the middle schooler on Quizilla. It's like it's like very moving emotionally, right? Cause I don't think I knew at that point of like this is my ticket out of here, you know, this is how I'm going to, like, you know, make a life for myself that, like, I really want. But I think there is something that I really recognize in looking back in terms of, like, she was searching, she wanted to know more, she, like, just knew there was so much more out there, and she wanted to be a part of it. So I really, like, love that about, I think, my younger self. I think that relationship is not really... The one that's in the book, I think the one that's in the book is sort of like a harsher one where it's just sort of like, so Audrey, the main character, I think when she reflects on her time in high school, there's like a lot of shame. But I think there's also this recognition of like whether she actually, you know, was alienated or just sort of felt alienated, like kind of all these combination factors that made her feel so trapped and angsty, you know. I think she sort of recognized that like yeah like that was a that was a bad time but I did what I had to do and now I'm fine right but I think what's more interesting is that she's she sort of realized like that narrative is a bit more complicated like it wasn't all bad mm-hmm. you actually did have people who cared about you you did you know have like really good memories but I think like She's sort of thinking about, like, this animal part of her that was just, like, I got to get out. Yeah. And now she's kind of at a place where she can really revisit it, like, a I guess, like, a rational person, mostly rational.
1: <laughs> but some of that feels pretty familiar mm-hmm. to, like— Oh, yeah. How are you even talking about the writing you're doing at Vanity Fair? Yeah. Going back, looking at stuff that meant a lot to you at different points in your life mm-hmm. and realizing, like, it wasn't
3: just— wasn't just just me me. yeah that has been a real this is this is like my I think the last like few years of my life realization is like I think I grew up for all these different reasons feeling like I think it's just me like I'm not telling anyone about my fan fiction I didn't know like outside of like you know there are other people I know who are like at home writing like slightly inappropriate stories about Harry Potter characters, you know, I was just like, maybe I'm just, like, super weird, (laughs) and I just got to go find, like, other people who get that, um, yeah, I guess that that's really, like, a a through line through so many things where I, whether, like, from circumstances or just, like, self-imposed beliefs where I was just, like, I'm the odd one out, no one else feels like this, and no, I think I'm finally at a point where I'm just like, no, I think actually everyone feels like this, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Do you think that's like a um, form of confidence?
3: I think so. I think so. Or even just like this like openness like to myself, but then also like an openness to just like so much more where, I don't know, like so of the self-help books that I love reading, there's like one that was just sort of like, this sounds really basic, but for some reason it was, like, so novel to me. But it was, like, when you're sort of, like, stressed out, everything is a threat, right? And I was, like, oh, yeah. Like, that makes so much sense why, like, when I was in my early 20s and I was having apartment problems, like, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I couldn't like, hold down relationships. I couldn't do the writing I wanted. I, you know, hated my job. And it was just like, oh, well, I didn't feel safe and secure. So, of course, like, I couldn't really do anything else. I think getting to a point where, where, like, things just, like, sort of feel secure and safe, I can actually then be open and curious about my own stuff, but also just, like, like the rest of the world in just a much more healthy way, I think, <laughs> than just sort of being like... Please, Internet, tell me the answer so I can, you know, plug this into the other part of the Internet and, like, get points.
1: It stopped feeling like a a game you could win
3: or lose? Yeah, yeah, or just, yeah, because I think I was always like, oh, like, if I just get a certain number of Twitter followers or a certain job or whatever, then, like, I'll be safe forever. I'll be, like, secure forever, and I won't want anything else. And I think, like, I'm realizing that, It's not really – that's not really how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Because otherwise you're just endlessly chasing, you know. Sorry, this turned into like a therapy session.
1: (laughs) Well, if that's anyone's fault, it's my fault. But I I love this. I'm so curious about what it means having arrived at that place, realizing there isn't some line that you cross and then – uh, it's, like, done.
3: hmm Yeah.
1: What do you think that means for your work?
3: I think that's, like, the terrifying question because I think a lot of people are like, oh, okay, well, like, what do you want next? And f- for a long time, I, I knew the answer. I was like, oh, I have this kind of whole, like, it's not really a plan, but, like, kind of like a vision board, right? And, you know, I'm... I'm about to turn 30. My novel's coming out next week. I just got back from reporting in LA for Vanity Fair. Like, what the fuck? What else? Like, what else? I don't want anything else. Like, you know, there's, that sounds crazy. I mean, the short answer is I'm like, oh, I just, I really want to really like build and, and sort of like build like a community and be like, you know, kind of really like settled down and like I found my I think I've like found my people and so now I'm just kind of like I wanna be in the world instead of like at home in the computer room, you know? Mm-hmm. But that sounds so crazy. Like even just saying that out loud, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like I can't I can't I can't believe it. It's like really hard to even like look you in the eye where I'm just like, oh my god, I'm like saying these words out loud.
1: You even looked me in the eye in like ten minutes. <laughs> <I know.
3: laughs> I'm so uncomfortable. This is so exhaustive. <laughs> <laughs> all, all my guts are on the table. Well,
1: it's a pretty amazing moment to talk to you.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy because I remember being a fellow at The Atlantic, and I think she'd be okay if I shared this, but my friend Amy Weismeyer, who's now managing editor there, we were in that fellow class together and we would just talk about we'd be like do you ever practice your answers for the long form podcast (laughs) and we'd be like yeah like i think about it all the time i think about it in the shower i think about it like at breakfast i do a little like rehearsing you know and we'd be like yeah like one day man you know so this is really crazy this is part of that this is part of the dream
1: did it live up to your expectations or did i just ask you about your feelings all the time
3: (laughs) No, I think, like, I have never had a conversation like this where I tied, like, my whole life together. So, you know, invoice me. (laughs) I can send you my insurance info. Like, (laughs) this has been kind of incredible.
1: Well, I've been looking forward to it for a long time. And uh, I've held off inviting you on the show because I wanted to wait and talk to you on the eve of this book. And uh, it was a real pleasure.
3: I'm glad you did. This is the moment. Thanks, Delia. Thank you, Bags.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Seth Kelly edited this episode thanks to him. Thanks to Megan Valley, who handled the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox with whom we make this show. And thanks very much to Delia Kai. Her novel is Central Places, read it. We'll see you next week.
0: When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like,
2: chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count.
0: Or, shoot that, shoot that!